Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Here's a story about some remarkable plants that should be all the encouragement you need to lift your eyes from the ground and gaze upwards next time you're in a forest. You never know. You might find a mistletoe to sneak a kiss underneath. But even if you don't, you'll discover a wonder of plants living a high-rise life. Our epiphyte guides are Victoria University of Wellington ecologist Casey Burns and PhD student Tom Dawes. We're here in Otari Wilton's bush uh, on the Canopy Walkway, which is probably one of the last remnant forests in Wellington. Uh, And up in the Canopy Walkway, we've got a great view of a whole bunch of climbing plants and epiphytes on the trees here. And yeah, it's it's a beautiful forest site in the city. So there's a bit of traffic in the background because this is quite close to the road, but it's a real bird's eye view of the the canopy of a forest. So can you point out the first epiphyte you're going to show me? Just here, this is a great little epiphyte. It's a Pyrosia alagnifolia. It's a scrambling, climbing little epiphyte. It's a lovely little leatherleaf fern. Many people probably know it. It grows all sorts of trees all around uh, New Zealand and it just scrambles along the outer branches of most of the trees and it lives pretty much exclusively in this habit, although it occasionally grows on some rocks and things. And it has these great little sori here that produce all the spores. And yeah, it lives its life up in the trees, up in the canopy, unconnected to the soil and, uh, and, and the like on the forest floor. So what defines an epiphyte, Casey? I got some hint of that just then from Tom. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question in and of itself. There's lots of different types of epiphytes. So the one that... Tom was just pointing to is this long scrambling thing. So one individual will occur across three or four meters of branch, actually, all spreading along and climbing to new heights. And the one behind it, see, the, there's, there's one with shiny, large leaves that look like it belongs in the forest floor. Yeah, it clearly looks like it's in the wrong place. It yeah. really should be growing on the forest floor. And that's in the genus Grizzlinia. What's the common name, Tom? Puku, I think, is the common name, yeah. And that one's cool. It's a different type of epiphyte, a hemi-epiphyte, because it starts its life at the tops of trees. So you can see where it's rooted in a branch trunk axle. And it's growing upwards. It looks like a bush at the top of the tree, but it's not finished growing. And in fact, most of its growth isn't going upwards. It's actually going downwards. So if you look carefully, you can see a bit camouflage, same color as the, as the trunk, but these little roots that are extending in a, in a network working its way downwards. So that particular epiphyte has a cool strategy that it starts at life at the tops of trees where there's not much soil, and it sends its roots downwards. So it grows mostly downwards to the forest floor where it can access water and nutrients in the soil below. Why does it want to be in the tree, though? Is that so it can get closer to the sunlight? Yeah, I think so. It's kind of like cheating. So this tree that it's in is uh, a rewa rewa. 
And it's massive. It, it extends clear above the canopy. It spent oh, probably 100, 150 years growing to reach that high to have priority access to the light. And then the puka comes along and cheats and steals all, in a way, steals all of that effort that Riwa Riwa has put into growing so tall. And it's clear at the top with access almost to full light. So, okay, we've got a thing that looks like it should be on the forest floor that's perching in a a crook of the branches and trying to grow down. We've got the scrambling ferns spreading itself along the branches. What else can we see, Tom? Yeah, well, we can see a whole bunch of other things. One of the things I can see just over here is we can see some of these ferns hanging down are the uh, Asplenium flaccidum. I think the English name is something like drooping spleenwort because it sort of hangs down from the trees. And that's quite a sort of generalist epiphyte that sort of occurs all over the bare branches um, and the bare trunk. There's a whole bunch of young ones just germinating on the trunk here. It's a generalist epiphyte that sort of can grow all over the trees and sort of tends to, yeah, have this different hanging habit rather than growing upwards like the puka. How much of what you see at the tops of trees, Tom, can you see from the forest floor? Or in other words, how much of, of the epiphyte diversity or total diversity in the forest will you not see if you're just walking around on the forest floor instead of the forest canopy? Yeah, it probably can be about 10%. So globally, I think it's 9 to 10% of all vascular plant species grow only as epiphytes. Big representation in tropical forests, but also quite a sizable chunk of New Zealand's forests. I don't know what the exact figure is for New Zealand's forests, but there's a sizable chunk, maybe 5-10% of the species you're not going to see if you're just down on the forest floor that are going to be growing as epiphytes, particularly groups like the ferns. And we've got a handful of orchids as well that are, that are quite reliant on this type of strategy, yeah, and they're going to be up in the forest canopy. There's some great climbers up the other end of the walkway just here. If we were to perhaps walk along, there's a whole bunch of climbing rata um, that have got... Uh, some of the species might be in flower now, but uh, this is a totally different strategy in the climbing ratas. Yeah, ah, here's a great example. So there's a perching rata. Is it the southern rata that starts? Uh, I think or the it's northern, northern rata. Northern, northern rata start starts perching. up on a tree, a bit like that gristolinia. Yeah, that's also a hemiapophyte, exactly. Yeah, it's a great uh, parallel. But it does something a little bit different than northern rata. It also can then form the tree afterwards um, once the host tree dies. But there's a whole bunch of rata species that are climbers here. And they sort of start on the forest floor and they have these little roots that grow upwards, up into the canopy. So it's sort of like an inverse strategy to the hemiapophyte where it starts on the forest floor and they grow up. And then when they get up to the canopy, they form this vast sort of branching profusion once they're up in the happy, happy environment of the greater light that they've got up here. And they, yeah, once they've got access to that light, they've still got the access to the water on the forest floor. Whereas the other ones that are starting higher up, water must be a bit of an issue for them. Yeah, it's a huge issue. In fact, it, it makes sense of a lot of the things that you see that are characteristic in epiphytes in general and, and lots of different strategies. I mean, back to your question before, what is an epiphyte? Well, I mean, it's actually a really difficult thing to describe. I mean, botanists put a definition to it. But an arboreal plant becomes an arboreal plant in a bunch of different ways. Like with the rata that Tom's just pointed out, it starts on the, florist, on the forest floor and grows upwards. The puka that we saw earlier starts in the canopy and grows downwards. Then there's a whole suite that live in the canopy and stay in the canopy. They don't send roots down. They don't grow up from the forest floor. They, they start life arboreally and they end life arboreally. And 
most of them don't uh, harm the host tree at all. They're just a bit of a load, I would think. Nothing more, nothing less. So it doesn't really negatively impact the host tree, I wouldn't think. But there's a whole different class of arboreal plant that are parasites. They're called mistletoes. And they're some of the most endangered uh, conservation of concern than the rest of the epiphytes, mainly because we've introduced the brush-tailed possum, which, which eats them in droves. But those are parasites, so they live at the top of canopies, and their roots, instead of extending down to the forest floor, burrow into the architecture, the plumbing, let's say, of the host trees and steal water and nutrients from them. So a whole bunch of different strategies of how to make a living at the tops of trees. I'm thinking about Northland and I'm thinking about kauri forests and one of the things you see a lot of up there are big astelias perched up in the tops of trees. Oh yeah, exactly. Astelias are a really important group of epiphytes. These big sort of nest epiphytes almost. They're big sort of clumps and what they do that's really awesome is they can sort of colonise these little crooks in the trees, little branch points, and when they're there, the leaves sort of capture some of the falling detritus from the canopy and they can sort of develop somewhat of a canopy soil. It's not totally equivalent to the soil on the forest floor, but it's going to break down and decompose and allow them access to some uh, nutrients from that. And, and of course, that will, to some degree, store a little bit of the rainwater that's coming through. And a lot of other epiphytes, including the great uh, hanging lycopod that, that will grow from these and will be reliant on perching lilies coming in first and sort of colonising what would have been otherwise sort of bare tree and they can grow once there's this resource of the uh, decomposing canopy soil that's in the clumps of the perching lilies. So you end up with quite a community going on up there. Yeah, that can be a real case where you've actually got some facilitation of other species coming in later. Somewhat analogous to a succession. I think famously they're called widow makers because you just really don't want to be standing underneath them if they they fall out of the tree. They can grow to huge size, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) So what is it about the group of epiphytes that interests you, that gets you to get students to work on them? Well, it's a whole hidden world, isn't it? I mean, most of us, when we go for a hike in the bush, we're on the forest floor, and we only see shrubs and herbs and anything that's close to us. We look up, we see the tops of trees, lots of leaves, maybe a bit of sky, but you really have to be closer to them to see epiphytes and appreciate all of their strategies of making a living. So... Without a canopy walkway like this, you don't have access to this hidden world. But once you you do begin to appreciate them, epiphytes and plants that live on other plants are really, really cool. And they're everywhere, not only in New Zealand, but elsewhere on planet Earth. And I don't know, it's this whole hidden world that, that most people don't, don't know about. And scientifically, the same holds true, that we know far less about epiphytes than we do about plants growing on the forest floor for the simple reason that they're not on the forest floor. Now, you're doing a PhD on them, Tom. Exactly what are you looking at? Yeah, I'm looking at a few different aspects of uh, community structure and a few different case studies. So one cool set of work that um, uh, I've just completed in September, actually, was I was down in Beach Forest in in Nelson Lakes National Park looking at some of the low-trunk epiphytes uh, on the different beech trees there. And what we've got in that system is a whole bunch of mosses and lichens and even smaller plants that people perhaps don't notice, uh, as well as some ferns as well. The Asplenium flaccidum that um, we've got here is also in that system. And what you've also got there is a really cool epiphyte in the black sooty mould which uh, coats the trees uh, where you've got uh, honeydew being produced. So that's the red beech and the mountain beech. 
but not the Silver Beach. So what you have is that the sooty mould there excludes well, almost all of the epiphytes from the low trunk area, and it means that you've only got a huge profusion of all these mosses and lichens on the Silver Beach. Another thing I've been looking at is um, we've looking at some of the uh, woody epiphytes on tree ferns, and these are sometimes called accidental epiphytes or facultative epiphytes. These are plants that sometimes occur as epiphytes. You so, mean a bird poos in the wrong place, is it? <laughs> yeah, it could be that. could be brought in on a gust of wind. Some of the wind-dispersed uh, species, like kamahi, um, that uh, is, a, is a common accidental or facultative epiphyte on, on tree ferns. Uh, and what, we, what I was looking at there is uh, what sort of species tend to be able to utilise this sort of recruitment strategy? Why are some species able to recruit on tree ferns and others are not and are, and are excluded from this niche? And basically what we found is it was the small-seeded things. So some things like kamahi and five-finger, and to a lesser extent some of the caprosma species even, will sometimes germinate on tree ferns because they've got smaller seeds and a big-seeded thing like a hinau or a, a, a pukatea, those seeds are far less likely to catch and germinate on the tree fern trunks and, and occur as epiphytes. Do the trees ever fight back? Do they, in a sense, not want this extra load that they're having to carry? Yeah, I think with Tom's work, it's the case that the lifespan of the tree fern in the kamahi or the rada is different from the tree ferns, so they live for a much longer time. So I don't think it impacts the fitness of the tree ferns so much, but it does impact the way the forest looks. So if you walk through lots of old-growth bush in New Zealand, you see these gnarled trees. Some of them are inside out or are hollow on the inside. And that's a telltale sign that it started life out as an epiphyte and grew downwards. So most kamahi and most strangling rata don't come up from a straight trunk. You can look at them from the forest floor and see openings in the trunk and weird sort of gnarled bits, and you can start to piece together, oh, if it got started on a tree fern and grew downwards, it makes sense of its gnarled appearance. So you see almost the ghost of epiphytism, if that's a word, past in the morphology of the trees down below. And I think Tom's work is important because it says that it's a major recruitment strategy in New Zealand forests. Without tree ferns, I don't think the recruitment would be the same, and certainly the way the forest looks wouldn't be the same either. I'm thinking back to Cody, though, and Cody often actually have very clean trunks, but they also have a habit of shedding their bark. So even if you tried to stick on, chances are you would get dropped off when the bark sheds. Yeah, I certainly think there's something to do with uh, differences in the bark morphology and I think in Kauri and potentially also Rimu they have big chunks of bark that can come off and that certainly affects some of the little climbers when they're climbing up because often you'll see the big perching lilies in the axles of the of the branch points but you won't see as many of the climbers climbing up particularly on some of the old rimus like the 800 year old rimu here at Otari Wilton's bush I can't think of any climbers scrambling up the base and they those rimu often lose big chunks of of bark over the years and so that potentially is something that's going on not something I've looked at but I, I think it's I think people have shown in different parts of the world that bark morphology and these shedding bark can really reduce epiphyte load or certainly climber load in that case uh, yeah so I think it can be a strategy to fight back I suppose because there must be a cost to the tree in some way You'd think so. And and sometimes you can see evidence of it. Like just down the way, there's a big hinau that grew 
and branched early, so it almost looks like the letter Y. One of the branches, the top branches, the top part of the letter Y, has tons of epiphytes, these big nest astelia clumps on it, and it must weigh, you know, five tons. Don't hold me to that. I don't know how much it weighs, but it's a huge amount of plant material. And you can see it's cracked the central stem of the tree. So there are instances where you can look up into the canopy and recognize that epiphytes might not be such a great thing for host trees. But there's not a lot of evidence for it. I'm, I'm not so sure most host trees, it might be a minor inconvenience from a fitness perspective, but I don't think it's a really huge deal. And there is documented examples of host trees having roots coming up from the forest floor and tapping into these gardens that are created by plants like Astelia using the soil that they collected, you know, they being the epiphytes. So it's not a really straightforward black or white sort of thing. On average, I bet you it's weakly negative, but nothing that really impacts the host tree all that much. It's a happy marriage, more or less. So we're quite blessed here in Otari because this is old-growth forest. This is that bit of forest that didn't get cut down. And it, that may be why it's so rich in epiphytes. Yeah, absolutely. These things take uh, a great number of years to accumulate, um, and you need those old, mature trees to support some of the larger perching lilies and some of the climbing ratas. And the northern rata is only going to regenerate on large uh, Rimu, so you do need this uh, mature canopy forest, which you don't tend to get many epiphytes in some of the earlier successional disturbed habitats, and these sorts of places tend to require a number of years to regain some of the species that are lost from sort of deforestation and forest fragmentation. Yeah. Would you say it's one of the last components of forest structure to come back after human disturbance? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's highly affected by human disturbance because not only have you got to wait for the entire forest of trees to come back, you've got to wait for the seeds to be dispersed back in. These may be missing bird dispersers, so that can be a real factor that really stops the epiphyte um, regeneration for a great many years after human disturbance, yeah. So a good measure of how well our restoration is doing around Wellington will be when you can look up in the canopy and start to see a good population of epiphytes. Yeah, I think you're right. That It's one of the last components of biodiversity to chime back in after previous pasture was let go and, and natural forest reseeds and through time it becomes what we would consider a forest, but the last component is going to be our boreal plants. Thanks, Casey. Casey Burns is an ecologist at Victoria University of Wellington and Tom Dawes is doing a PhD on epiphytes. And why not take a closer look at trunks and branches when you're out in the bush this summer? I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 17th of December 2020. You can listen again at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'm off air for the next few weeks having a southern summer break, but there is plenty of audio on that webpage to keep you entertained for hours and days and probably even weeks. The Summer Science Collection is a curated selection of favourite stories from the past year. Find it under the Collections tab. Also check out the Podcasts tab at rnz.co.nz. You will find some great audio and video series there on a very diverse range of topics. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe, have a great summer, and catch you next year. 
Kia pai tora. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.